the words of Christmas, it's Christmas season, when uh, is the time that you can start singing Christmas music? I've already listened to the Christian radio stations and noticed they start right after Thanksgiving Day. They've already been playing it 24-7. And I kind of get annoyed with it actually because that's all I hear. Can I hear something different than a Christmas song at this time of the year? And, uh, but they'll play it and they'll cut it off right when December 26th comes. We'll be back to quote, regular Christian music. But I know some people love to listen to Christmas music in the summer all year round. I'm just not one of those people. I'm, I'm not a Scrooge, but I just, I like to have Christmas music closer to actually Christmas than all throughout the year. And now this is the big one. When is it the appropriate time to start shopping for Christmas? Now, I want to show you this survey. And as you see this survey, uh, you'll notice here in this survey, whoever they asked, there was only 24% of the people actually waited until December. Now, I know some, especially some ladies, like to, when they find a deal, it doesn't matter what time of the year it is, it's time to buy a Christmas gift. But I know this survey was only given to women. You know why that's the case? I do not see Christmas Eve as one of the choices. Isn't that right? I mean, if... If this was given to men and to women, I think at least half the men would say they start shopping on Christmas Eve. And that's not even one of the choices. The last one they've got there is December. So anyway, so whenever you start Christmas shopping, whenever you start singing Christmas songs, you are starting the Christmas season in your family, in your life. And I know our American culture starts earlier and earlier at least as it's trying to push merchandise on us. That starts earlier and earlier every year. And so we ask the question, when does Christmas start? We're celebrating as a church today, the first Sunday in Advent. And you might think, if you think biblically, that Christmas starts, duh, it starts when Jesus was born. That's when it starts. Or maybe when the announcement was given that Jesus would be born. Or maybe you're really theological and say, well, maybe it was when the announcement was given to Zechariah and Elizabeth that John the Baptist was going to be born. That's when the story really starts. But I would say that the story starts even earlier than that. In fact, so early that it almost goes back to the beginning of time. The story of Christmas really begins in the garden. It begins with Adam and Eve, and it begins when they sinned and disobeyed God. You see, Jesus didn't just come to earth to hang out with us. You know, even, I know our Christmas celebration in America is a lot about Santa Claus and uh, about uh, uh, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. I know that is our celebration. But sometimes even in the midst of all of that, we hear that Christmas is about a boy about a child who's born. But even still, the celebration often is, oh, good, let's be excited, let's be joyful. A baby was born. Well, that always happens, doesn't it? Anytime there's a baby born, it's a joyful occasion. So the celebration often doesn't get past that. Joy, a child is born. Joy, a baby is born. Joy, a boy's born to a family. And we forget the whole reason why even... Jesus came in the first place. And it wasn't just to hang out. It's not like God was sitting in heaven. You know, I'd really like to hang out with those 
Jews there in Judah. I like to hang out with the humans I created. I'm just going to go down there. We're going to kick back and enjoy it and, and hang out. That's why I want to come and be with them. That's not why Jesus came. And to understand Christmas, you really have to know the problem that Jesus came to solve. And that's the problem of sin. And that began in the garden. And that's when Jesus is even mentioned there. Because there's a hint, a slight hint, as God is cursing the serpent. And he's telling the serpent, and I'm paraphrasing, basically you got the good on these two this time. But there's going to be one born from a woman who's going to crush your head. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And there was a glimpse of a promise that Satan through the serpent hadn't had the last word. He'd messed things up. The perfect world that God had created now was in chaos. Now when we work, it's hard. We sweat. Now when children are born, it's painful. Now there's death. Things are pretty messed up. But even there in Genesis, there's a glimmer of hope that a deliverer is coming. A conqueror is coming. There's the beginning of the story. And in Isaiah 7, we see this exemplified. We see evil, we see sin, we see plotting, we see oppression, but we see the promise of deliverance. I want to introduce you to three kings. And they're not the three kings, we three kings of Orient are. That's not the three kings we're looking at today. But we're looking at three kings from the 8th century B.C. in the Middle East. There is one king, Rezin, who's the king of Syria, or Aram. And that is the same geographical area that the modern-day country of Syria is. In fact, the ancient capital of Syria was Damascus, the modern capital of Syria today is Damascus. And much like Syria and Damascus today is in the midst of civil war, it's an awful place to be. So it was in Rezin's day. There's another king in this story, Pekka, or Pika. I'm not sure exactly how to say his name. It's not Pikachu. I know it's not that. But uh, Pika or Pekka was the king of Israel. If you remember, David... And Solomon ruled over a united kingdom, but it divided. The northern part of the tribes of Israel became the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern three tribes became the country of Judah. This is what the Bible says about Pekah. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. And he became king by assassinating the king before him. He's an evil king. He's an assassin. He doesn't follow God, yet he is the ruler in Israel. The king in Judah is no better. The Bible describes him in this way. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God like his ancestor David, but walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even sacrificed his son in the fire, imitating the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. Remember, God had gone into this part of the world with Joshua 
and told Joshua to conquer all of these people because they were vile and they were evil and God was punishing them and wanted to eradicate from that part of the world these detestable practices. But the Israelites at different times in history didn't get rid of the practices. They joined in on them. And this was the case of Ahaz. You can't get much more detestable than taking your children and sacrificing them in a fire as a sacrifice to a pagan god, to an idol. That's how depraved Ahaz was, how depraved the nation was. This is how violent, oppressive, evil this part of the world was in the 8th century B.C., I want to give you a short history lesson because it helps us to explain why God came to Ahaz and spoke to him. There was a country, Assyria, from the east that was gobbling up countries and getting closer to Israel and Syria and Judah. So Syria and Judah, Rezin and Pekah, decided we've got to do something. They're coming. They're going to destroy us. And we can't stop Assyria by ourselves. Let's join together. Let's fight against our common enemy. And they also realized the two of us can't do it either. We need Ahaz to help us. We need all three of us to stand and fight against Assyria. But Ahaz said, no, you guys can have it. I'm not going to get involved. Ahaz could look at the map. You see the orange and the green and the purple. He's the purple. There's two countries north of him before he can get to him. So he wasn't going to help them. And in fact, he was also conniving behind the scenes because he figured Assyria was stronger than both of those guys. And so he was going to help Assyria conquer those two nations and save his own skin. So he said, no, I'm not going to help. You're on your own. And they didn't like that too much. So they decided they were going to then combine together and attack Judah, get rid of Ahaz and put a puppet king in his place, and then the three of them, the puppet king and those two, would then have a combined army to fight Assyria. In fact, they were pretty successful at the beginning. In one battle, 120,000 Judah soldiers were killed. The combined forces of Rezin and Pekah got all the way to the gates of the city of the capital, Jerusalem. And they were ready to take the city to kill Ahaz. And the people are in fear. I want you to think about our world today. Our world today is just like the world was back then. There's evil, there's cruelty, there's oppression, there's power struggles... We see it politically as we hear the news. We hear it as we read the, uh, as we see it as we read the paper, hear it as we listen to the news. You read in the Bible and you see these things that are described as detestable, but you hear and see things today that are just as bad. Really, our world isn't any different. And we live in a world that has been marred and scarred and destroyed by sin. The people were so afraid, Isaiah 7 says, that they were shaking. 
like trees blowing in the wind. Now, I've been cold enough to shiver. I haven't been afraid enough to shiver. Okay, So I guess that's what, something that happens. I've been afraid enough to, to do nothing, to, to be paralyzed in fear, but not afraid enough to shiver, I guess. But the people were afraid. Here was a combined army that had already killed 120,000 soldiers, and now they're at the gates of the city. They're ready to take the city. They're afraid their life as they know it's going to end. They are afraid that they're going to become slaves. They're afraid that they are going to be oppressed. Their whole way of living is gone. But this is what God says to the people. He says, calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks. The fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah, who is Pekah. You see, God says, you're afraid as though a raging fire is going to come and destroy you. And if you were in the midst of a raging fire or one was right at your doorstep, you would be afraid. But are you afraid of the smoldering sticks that are in the end of a campfire? I mean, you just step on those and put those out. Or you pick them up and you use them to draw on the rocks. You're not afraid of those. Those aren't dangerous. Those don't cause alarm. And so God says, calm down. Uh, these two who seem like a raging fire that are going to destroy you are just smoldering sticks. God tells us the same thing when it comes to the world we live in. Fortunately, our, our life is relatively safe. We're, we're not... Uh, refugees of war, we're not seeing violence right before our eyes every day. Still, for most of us, it's something we read or something we see, and it always seems far away. But the reality is, if we think about it, sin and its consequences are in our home and in our neighborhoods and in our church and all around us. And it can cause us to be afraid or to worry or be concerned about how we are going to make it when this world is so terrifying. But the wonderful news is Jesus has already said that he's overcome the world. He tells us we can be calm. We can be at peace. There's no reason to shake in fear. Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Calm. Quiet, not shaking in fear. You will have suffering in this world. Jesus is realistic. He knows the world we live in. He's not saying it's going to be easy. He's not saying it's going to be rosy. He says it's going to be suffering. But you can still have peace. Because he says, I've overcome the world. He says, be courageous. Cheer up. Chin up. Not, don't have it down, don't be downcast, don't be discouraged, but cheer up, be courageous. I have conquered the world. See, that's the faith that God wanted Ahaz to have. That even though these kings were around him, to have faith in a God who conquers and a faith in a God who delivers. That's what God wanted Ahaz to have, but he didn't have that. God says to 
Ahaz through Isaiah the prophet. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The chief of Aram is Damascus. The chief city of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, that's the name for the nation of Israel, will be too shattered to be a people. The chief of Ephraim is Samaria. That's the capital city of Israel. And the chief of Samaria is the son of Remelah, who again is Pekah. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. God says to Ahaz, believe, have faith, be at peace, have calm. I am God, I am strong, believe in me and you will be delivered. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. Brothers and sisters, when we have faith in God, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter how the consequences of sin engulf us, we can be strong. We can have peace. We can have calm. God has given Ahaz an opportunity to exercise that faith. It's obvious what can be seen by the eyes. He's lost soldiers. The enemy's at his gate. God's asking Ahaz, don't look at that. Look to God. See there your deliverer. See there your strength. See there your joy and your peace. Look there, Ahaz. God says, stand firm in your faith. And then God even gives him an opportunity to have a sign to prove that God is with him. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God's saying, take a time now to have faith. But he's also saying to Ahaz, Ahaz, if your faith is weak, if you need it to be strengthened, then ask for a sign. It can be anything. God was offering to do anything, I mean, from the highest heaven to the lowest depths in the inside of the earth. You can't get any higher or lower than those two places. God literally said to him, you ask anything as a sign that I'm with you, that I'm going to keep this promise, that these kings aren't going to destroy you, and I will give it to you. I mean, God, God gave some pretty awesome signs in the Bible. He did some pretty awesome things. He made the, sand, the sun stand still. He made the sun, the shadows on the steps go backwards. God says, ask. And this is Ahaz's response. I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. He sounds real spiritual. It is a bad thing to test the Lord. The Israelites learned the hard way in the desert... When they tested the Lord, how the Lord got angry with them. Ahaz gave a spiritual sounding answer, but his heart was far from God. The reason he didn't want a sign is he didn't believe in the first place. He didn't believe. He didn't have any faith. Why would he want to see a sign? He also knew his heart wasn't right with God. He also knew he was an idolater. He didn't worship God. He knew what he had done in sacrificing his son. He knew if there was some word of judgment coming from Isaiah's mouth about Pekah and about Rezin, there was going to be something about him too. He didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to change. He didn't want to have any faith. He didn't want to believe. 
Basically, he's blowing God off, saying, God, get out of here. All right, I can handle it. I've already asked the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria is going to help me. I don't need you, God. I don't want you, God. Just get out. That's my paraphrase of Ahaz's response to the Lord. But God doesn't give up that easily. God said to him through Isaiah, Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men, it should say? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. Ahaz is going to get his sign, whether he wants it or not. God is going to keep his promise. And he's going to show Ahaz how he's going to keep it. Or give him a sign to prove that he's going to keep it. The sign really has three parts. The first part is that a virgin is going to have a son. His name is going to be Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. The second part is that he's going to be born in a time of turmoil. If you're eating curds and honey... That doesn't really make much sense to us. But in those days, that was a phrase that signified a time of of starvation, a time of chaos, a time when there was not the regular reaping and sowing of the fields. Because of violence or military conquest or because of famine and drought or whatever, the the seasons have been disturbed, the, the harvests aren't coming in. Now you're just going and eating the things in the wild. And the third part of the sign is that before this son knows what's right and what is wrong, those two kings are going to be gone. So the sign is a promise of a son born in tumultuous times, And in those tumultuous times, God brings deliverance. That's the sign that was given to Ahaz. And that sign came true in Ahaz's day. A a virgin would have a son. In Isaiah, if you read the Hebrew word, it could be translated a young woman would have a son. Or maybe the woman who had the son, was a virgin at the time that Isaiah spoke. We could debate that, and scholars have debated it forever. But I'm certain of this, that in Ahaz's day, there was a woman who had a son. Maybe he was actually given the name Emmanuel. And that son, as all sons do, he grew up. At first he was like any of us. He was a baby. He didn't know right or wrong. Babies don't know right or wrong. All they know is themselves. They know whether they're hungry or whether they're wet. That's all they know. But babies learn. And by the time some, a child is a toddler, especially by the time they're three or four, they know what's right and wrong. They feel shame and guilt. They know what's right, what's wrong. And so by that time that Emmanuel, who was born, 
was old enough to know what was right and wrong, those kings were gone. This was a sign, it was a promise to show Ahaz and the whole nation that God was with them. See, they were afraid. They had no faith. Ahaz was looking to Assyria to help him, another pagan king. But God wanted them to know that he was with them. Those two kings, within three years, were dead. It's poetic justice that Pekah, who assassinated the king previous to him, was assassinated by another man who became king. His rule came to an end because he was assassinated. Rezin, the Assyrians got him, killed him. He was no longer a threat. They both were dead, gone. These two who were at the gates, these two that were making big claims, these two that were going to destroy the nation of Judah, within three years they're both dead. They're gone. And in fact, just a few years later, their whole countries are gone. Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. Syria was conquered by the Assyrians. In a short time, both nations, both kings, gone from the face of the earth. Where was the threat? Where was the worry? Where was all of the, the panic? There was no need. Because God was with them. Now, as it turns out, Judah, especially Ahaz, wasn't doing too well themselves. God had more to say from Isaiah to Ahaz. I think that's why he didn't want to hear what Isaiah had to say. Because the verses go on, I won't read them to you, but it goes on to describe a time when Judah itself would be judged because they had turned from God and were worshiping idols. And it was a warning to Ahaz and to all of Judah, repent, come back, leave idolatry, leave this... This abominations, leave it and come back to me. And that time, the only way Judah escaped was they started giving vast amounts of money to Assyria. Empires in those days loved to conquer other nations, but they loved money more. <laughs> so nothing's changed. So as long as the king of Assyria was getting all of the gold, and you know where Ahaz got the gold and all the riches? He took it out of the temple and gave it to the king of Assyria. That spared them for a while, but they needed to come back to God. But that sign went much farther. It didn't stay there in Ahaz's day. It looked forward to a time, as Matthew tells us, that a literal virgin has a son. He quotes Isaiah 7 when he talks about Mary, how Mary was a virgin and how she had a son because the Holy Spirit came over her. This just wasn't any son, just not any baby. This was literally God with us. This was literally Emmanuel. And he was born in a time when the Romans were oppressing and the Romans were destroying the Jewish people. A time of tumult, a time of turmoil. That's when Jesus came. And in his lifetime, it wasn't by the time Jesus was three, but by the time he was 33, in his lifetime, he brought deliverance. And not just deliverance to a nation. Not just deliverance of a foreign military army. But he brought deliverance from sin 
and death to the whole world, to everybody. That's what Jesus did. That's why he came. See, this is the problem. We live in a world filled with sin. It's in us. It's in our actions. It's all around us. It was in Ahaz's day. It was in Adam and Eve's day. It's been in every day of humanity since Adam and Eve sinned. That's the beginning of the problem. But Jesus is the solution. That's why he came. Again, not just to hang out. He came to die. He came to be a sacrifice. He came to show his love for us by dying on the cross, forgiving our sin, conquering death, the ultimate penalty for sin. Jesus did all of that when he came. So to truly understand this Christmas season, it's more obviously than Santa Claus, and it's more than the joy of a baby born. It's even more than the joy of, oh, Jesus was born. It's the joy of a Savior has been born. A conqueror has been born. A deliverer has been born. And we who believe and have faith that Ahaz didn't have, our sins are forgiven. And heaven is our home. And death will not hurt us or destroy us. That's why we sing of joy at Christmas. So this morning, I encourage you, if you are here today and you know the consequence of sin, you know the burden of sin, but you do not have the deliverance from sin. Because you've never believed in Jesus as your Savior. You've never accepted Him as your Savior. You can do so today. Believe that He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Believe that He rose again to life. Believe. Have faith. And you will. Have your sins forgiven and you will be a child of God with heaven as your home. Brothers and sisters who have already put their faith in Jesus Christ, be thankful this morning that a deliverer, a savior was born. But also look at your life. I mean, as I said, Ahaz, he was an evil king. None of us here in this room I would expect are that evil. And I know you're not that evil because none of your children are not here because you sacrificed them, okay? So I know that you're not that evil. But there is sin in our life still. How can we celebrate Christmas and the deliverer who came if we still hang on to sin and want it in our life? So a great way to prepare for the Christmas season is to repent, be clean, get all that junk out of your life. And then you're ready to welcome Jesus and ready for him to be in your life. So I encourage you to do that. I also encourage you, if you are in the midst of time where it feels as though you are being oppressed, there's too much tragedy, too much sorrow, too much hurt, hear the words of Jesus. In this world you will have trouble. Cheer up. Be encouraged. Jesus has overcome the world. Father, we come to you this time wanting to respond, Lord, to what you have taught us. As I've just shared, I pray. I pray for those who don't know you, Jesus, as Savior. I pray today would be their day of deliverance. I pray for all of us who are your children that we would 
confess and repent of the sin in our life so that, God, we can celebrate and look forward to Christmas with you with clean hands and clean hearts. I pray, Lord, for those who are hurting and struggling today. Lord, I pray that you would give them peace where, in place of worry. I pray that you would give them a calm in the place of panic. I pray that you would give them a strong faith in the place of fear. I pray, God, that you would give them encouragement where there is despair. And I pray your words, Jesus, I have overcome the world, would give them comfort, hope, peace this morning. Lord, we want to sing, we want to say yes to you, and we do so now, as I pray, Jesus, in your name, amen. Stand with me. We're going to sing, but it's not just a song, it's a time to respond to what God has spoken to our hearts. I'm here to pray with you if you have any need. I'm here to pray with you, to talk to you more about Jesus and how you can be saved and he can be your savior. I'm here if you have any commitment to God you want to make sure before this congregation. I'm here to pray and be with you. Let's sing. Let's respond.